Welcome to the Reason Roundtable, the weekly libertarian podcast brought to you by the magazine that has been advocating for the abolition of the IRS since 1968. I am Matt Welch, joined by Peter Suderman, Catherine Mangu Ward, and birthday boy Nicholas Robinette Gillespie. Happy Nick Day, everyone. Howdy. Happy birthday. Happy Monday. Hey, Matt. We are going to talk about what the victory of Joe Biden's legislative agenda means for these United States here in a moment. But first, ever feel like someone's tracking you online, even when you think you're being discreet? Well, they are because you're not. That is, unless you're using IPVanish VPN. IPVanish is a service that helps you stay anonymous online. It's a golden ticket to browse safely without exposing your private information to third parties, such as advertisers, ISPs, or secret bad people. When you use IPVanish on your computer, tablet, phone, or other fancy device, all of your data is encrypted. That means all your private details, passwords, communications, browsing history, physical location, will be completely shielded and without sacrificing your speed. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Roundtable listeners who act right now will receive an incredible 70% off their yearly plan, all with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Just go to ipvanish.com slash roundtable, use the promotional code roundtable, and take your privacy back right now. For the spelling impaired, that's ipvanish.com slash roundtable. Do it today. You'll be glad you did. Okay, a month ago it was dead, Two weeks ago, it was revived. Yesterday, it was passed by the Senate. And as soon as this week, it will become law. It's Joe Biden's Build Back Better bill, rebranded implausibly but effectively as the Inflation Reduction Act, bundling together climate change mitigation spending, changes in the way prescription drug prices are negotiated, corporate tax hikes, plus a radical spending and staffing increase at the IRS. It was passed by a party line vote of 5150 which coincidentally is the California legal code number allowing for people experiencing a mental health crisis to be involuntarily hospitalized for 72 hours. Some of the headlines from this mo morning include Biden steps out of the room and finds legacy defining wins. Washington Post. Joe Biden just had the best week of his presidency. Newsweek, which apparently still exists. And how Biden's big win in the Senate could change America and reshape his fortunes. CNN. Catherine, you're the editor of Reason. Uh, could uh, Biden's big win change America in a good way? Nah, I don't think it's going to change America that much either way, to be honest. I mean, it's a big it's a big old piece of legislation. And I, I think sometimes in D.C. in particular, people get obsessed with the size of a bill. They're just like that bill was really big. So I guess we did a thing. And uh, I think it's worth noting that this bill is much, much smaller than the thing they wanted to do. This bill probably won't do the thing its name suggests that it will do. And we can talk about this a little bit more later in the show. Um, there are a bunch of things in it, as is often the case with these big, dumb garbage bus bills that are going to have to be walked back, rewritten, redone, slow rolled, etc. So, yeah, it's a whole bunch of legislation. Will it be a legacy defining moment for Joe Biden? Mm, probably not. Nick, what's a concrete way that we can or should uh, assess down the road whether this thing was a failure or a success on its own terms? And what is your running prediction about how that will go? 
I don't think that it's going to have much of an effect, uh, even even electorally. I mean, everybody is talking about, oh, you know, Biden is passing legislation and this is, you know, it's the best week of his presidency, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, is presidents lose when they actually get things passed. Uh, this is, you know, this happened to George Bush. It happened to Obama. It happened to Trump. People hate the stuff that they're passing. And for, you know, reasons that we talked about over the past couple of weeks, this isn't going to reduce inflation. Uh, it is not going to uh, raise tons of revenue only by targeting wealthy people and corporations. And it's not going to, uh, you know, it's it's not going to change the environment uh, anytime soon. So this is just a big, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, thing to do, but it's not actually going to uh, to help. I, I don't think it's going to help Biden or the Democrats in the midterms. But more importantly, because I don't really care about that, it's not going to reduce inflation and it's not going to right size government going forward. I, I don't know exactly how we, uh, you know, evaluate this down the road. I think last week, Peter was pretty uh, spot on when he talked about how you know, the Affordable Care Act 10 years later or more um, was not affordable, but you know, are people going to evaluate it that way? It, you know, it hasn't made healthcare more affordable. It's just made it more expensive. Um, you know, it's almost, it's ridiculous to even worry about how you evaluate these. Yeah. There's a, you know, uh, we passed a big infrastructure bill, uh, earlier in Biden's, uh, first term here. And there wasn't a lot of discussion at the time of that passage or even the, the, um, the negotiations about it about how the original um, 2009 uh, uh, big stimulus bill uh, recovery act uh, was supposed to be the biggest infrastructure spending since the Eisenhower built the interstates. Um, people don't look backwards in that way. Peter, you wrote a piece uh, in the August, September issue that was just posted online, had the headline of um, uh, Biden's giveaways largely benefit well off Americans. I was wondering if you could um, perhaps look at this bill through that lens, um, maybe even uh, uh, focusing on the IRS component of it. So I'll actually start with uh, with healthcare and Obamacare, since Nick brought it up, because I think it's important. The clearest example of this bill uh, delivering benefits to six figure earners is the Obamacare provision. And so what this bill does is it takes the two-year extension, the two-year temporary expansion of Obamacare subsidies that was in the American Rescue Plan that was passed last year. And it ex extends it for another couple of years out to 2025. And what that does is it lifts the income cap for subsidies. So when Obamacare was first passed, uh, you only got subsidies if you made up to 400% of the poverty line, which is about $106,000 or so for a family of four. And now there's no cap, which means that theoretically, depending on where you live, it's a little bit complicated. There's a sort of a, a complex underlying formula here. But depending on where you live, some families that earn $350,000 a year could qualify for tens of thousands of dollars in subsidies for health insurance. And that's one of the things this bill does. The, the bulk of those benefits, however, are going to go to people earning between about $106,000 a year and about $160,000 a year, right? So not, not people who are super rich by any stretch, 
but not what we would think of as the struggling poor. If you're making $150,000 a year anywhere in America, uh, I, like that to me does not say, hey, this is somebody who is who is really badly off, uh, right? Yes, you might have some financial issues. I don't want to say that like you can't be that you can't be stretched on that budget. At the same time, that puts you well into the you know top thirty or twenty percent of the income stratum uh, in the country, and uh, maybe even higher than that. I don't have the numbers in front of me. And so this bill subsidizes health insurance for people making six figures. Uh, but the other thing that I would say here is that this bill is designed to uh, to raise revenue um, by. Uh, it, by adding money to the IRS enforcement. So they're going to hire a whole bunch of agents. They are going to increase the number of audits. Now, the line on this that you hear going around is that why would anybody be against that? This is just the IRS is going to go after rich tax cheats. But if you look at the IRS's audits over the last couple of years, the ones they've already been doing, what you see is that more than half of the audits that they performed last year were for people making less than $75,000 a year. A surprising number of them actually were on people who claimed the earned income tax credit. So that's the tax credit for low-income workers, right? That's like, it's basically, uh, it's the closest thing we have to Milton Friedman's negative income tax. It's, it's effectively a welfare policy. And that's who is getting targeted because that's who doesn't have the resources to fight back. Because even though people who make half a million dollars or a million dollars a year or have a huge net worth, whatever it is, uh, even though there might be more money sort of in play when you, when you audit someone like that, those people have the resources to hire lawyers and spend a lot of time on the phone with the IRS. And they make it really difficult to actually get the money because even if you eventually get it, the IRS has to spend hours and hours and days and days uh, trying to trying to recover the, the money from those audits. And so the best bang for buck for the IRS has historically been to go after low income or lower income earners. And you have to imagine that if they are actually going to try and hit those revenue targets here, there's going to be a lot more of that. Catherine, uh, hitting, uh, uh, extending the uh, healthcare uh, component of this. Last night on uh, my uh, Twitter slipstream, um, people were really upset about how the Senate uh, killed all the diabetics. Um, very, very mad about what the uh, last minute negotiations regarding the price of insulin were. Can you walk us through that? And whether or not the charge of murder is accurate? Yeah, I mean, I'll start by saying one of my favorite is so I've said before on this podcast, I uh, like when I'm feeling down, I like to get online and find videos of like kids getting their cochlear implants turned on or like little babies getting glasses put on. I love like a happy medical cyborg moment. Um, but the OG, like the best version of that story is one that sadly there is no video because it took place in 1922. And it is um, the moment that insulin was first used in a clinical setting. And it's it, it truly must have seemed like a miracle to these people. I mean, this is, you know, Banting and Best, you know the story. They kind of figure out the mechanism they try it on one kid. It's not quite right. They refine it um, with the help of a, a biochemist. And then they realize that it works. They realize that it reverses the effects of uh, of diabetes. And at, at this time, diabetes is a horrific death sentence. This is type 1 diabetes, right? So this is children slowly dying, their parents watching, absolutely unable to do a single thing about it. 
just the only treatment that's available at this time is a starvation diet. So you starve your children as long as you can until they die. And these hospital wards... It doesn't sound like much of a treatment. I mean, it kept them alive for months, sometimes years, but not in a happy life, obviously. And so, you know, they Banting and Best take these vials of insulin and they go around this diabetes ward. And the story goes, at least, that by the time they finished injecting the last patient, the first patients in the ward had, like, risen from their diabetic comas of death and were able to speak to their parents and were basically alive again. Like, what a miracle. What an incredible, incredible story. And then subsequently, Banting and Best wanted to kind of make sure that it would be widely available. And so there's this interesting back and forth about the intellectual property of insulin, where um, they end up kind of handing it over to a university in order to um, hopefully prevent third parties from monopolizing the IP. Uh, It doesn't work out that way. And so uh, in the end, insulin is expensive. It is produced by a small number of companies and it has been getting more expensive. People feel betrayed by that. They remember a time when insulin was cheaper and now it's not. And um, I totally get that. But the fact that they singled it out in this way is illiterate about the underlying science. I've already talked too long, so I'm not going to get into it. But basically, generic insulin isn't really a thing the FDA can do. It's not a chemical. It's like a it's a human, it's biosimilar. So you can't just make the thing that somebody already made again. So there's a regulatory problem with the FDA. There is, um, but also there are tons of life-saving drugs. You know, there are 35 million Americans on statins. Why are we not showboating about the statins? It's just we've picked insulin to have a hissy fit about. And I personally think it's like very cynical politics and that arbitrarily putting caps on stuff is going to uh, is going to reduce the innovation that people in this you know, di- that diabetics still need. And in fact, they did get some insulin caps right. through in this it's bill. It's part of so, the generic price controls. But no, it's, I mean, right? right. So it's it's now if you are on Medicare, you are capped. And what they didn't get through is caps for everyone else in the private market because procedurally that violates the reckon- the bird rule which is the sort of main procedural um uh, issue with uh passing bills on a, a through reconciliation which is what this was passed through because that's not germane to the budget because just like controlling prices in the private market doesn't have a direct, clear effect. You can say maybe it has some sort of secondary effect, but it does not have a direct, clear effect on the federal budget. And so the parliamentarians said, you cannot do that. And and what Democrats decided to do then was say, okay, we're going to try to overrule the parliamentarian, presuming we, they knew that they, it, that they weren't going to. They just wanted to get Republicans on uh, on record so that they could run advertisements against Republicans in the midterms. And that was like this this vote here was entirely about getting Republicans on the record uh, in order to run ads against them. Nick, you've been a critic in the past, particularly, though, not only in the Obama administration of passing significant pieces of legislation on a purely party line vote, which is, of course, what happened yesterday in the Senate. Um which is wondering if you're still uh, of that mind, um, uh, whether and also uh, like, why is that a problem and how is it avoidable in a period that we're experiencing of really strongly negative polarization? 
So, yeah, I'm still a, a critic of it uh, because when you have the bigger the bill, the more of a consensus that you need for something. And, you know, just as the courts, I think, tend to follow public opinion, legislation follows public opinion. Like you don't you don't transform society through legislation. You certify transformations that are building into consensus through legislation. So anytime you have a major bill, and this could be to go to war, it could be to, you know, spend a bazillion dollars on healthcare or on, you know, various other types of things. Um, if it's a razor thin uh, margin, um, it doesn't have the full backing of people and it's not going to work partly because it's it's not dealing with the range of opinion that's out there. And this gets to uh, you know, part of the one of the problems with it is that this stuff immediately starts to get chiseled away um, it because it doesn't represent what people actually want. Uh, and we saw that with something like Obamacare, you know, within a couple of years, uh, a key component and a terrible component, but a key component, which was the individual mandate, you know, just kind of kind of went away because the Republicans came into power and were like, OK, we're not going to enforce this. Um, and then, you know, the way that you pass legislation is by doing stuff. And this is something Justin Amash talks about a lot is like you actually go and you forge a consensus on something. Uh, you know, people expect, uh, you know, like everybody to go along with whatever they want. And it's just that's not the way it's done. Like, you know, and when you look at things like civil rights legislation uh, or even environmental legislation and things like that, you you have to build the sense that, uh, you know, change has to happen. And then this bill uh, you know, this sweeping legislation is the answer to that need, uh, not cramming things down people's throat. We live in a polarized age, uh, partly because for the entirety, pretty much of the 21st century, with the exception of the occasional awful unanimous bills like the Patriot Act or uh, certain types of financial bailouts uh, and, uh, you know, things like uh, Dodd-Frank um, or Sarbanes-Oxley, which had pretty wide consensuses, but were terrible. But, you know, you just have you have a small majority, a slim majority shoving stuff down the throat of a fat minority. And that just doesn't that doesn't end well. It doesn't start well and it doesn't end well. The, Peter, uh, building on that. Yeah. Yeah. Just the a fun example, a uh, telling example, I should say, maybe it's not that fun, but um, it's a really telling of uh, Nick's point there is that throughout this process, as Democrats have not have struggled to pass versions of Build Back Better and then what became the Inflation Reduction Act, Bernie Sanders kept complaining that one senator was holding back the will of the majority. It wasn't one senator. It was, I mean, Joe Manchin was an obstacle, but it was 51. It was Joe Manchin plus 50 Republicans. Also, right at the end, Bernie Sanders was briefly the one senator holding back yeah. the will of those 50, 50 slash 51 other senators. Like at the very end, he was like, hold on, wait, we did this. We made this bill, but I still wish it was my bill, the bigger one from before. I'm just going to see like what what if like unless it was this weird not weird this is this is the bernie sanders demo and honestly like you know we have long respected this in uh in members of congress when they're doing it for our ends right i we love a little obstructionist filibuster we love a little dr no but um you know the fact that bernie is out here complaining about his colleagues being obstructionist and then just doing a last minute recreational obstructionism to like keep his cred intact is uh is rich. To be fair, that's the whole point of the Votorama. Peter, can you, uh, for 
those of us who lack your uh, uh, cement lining uh, in your stomach to deal with all things Washington, can you briefly explain what Voterama means and what that tells us about those process concerns that Nick and Justin Amash have? So the cement lining is actually for high proof whiskey and uh, just yes. a, a, like incidentally helps with the congressional procedure stuff. Votorama is the process um, by which you get a you, you move a reconciliation bill to a vote. So normally under normal order which is not reconciliation. You can basically stop anything from coming to a vote, coming to the floor, uh, uh, if you are in control of the, if you are the, the majority, which means that Republicans in this case, because they are not the majority in the Senate, um, do not normally have a chance to get stuff put to a vote, right? But under reconciliation rules, they have the op opportunity to offer unlimited amendments, which means they get to put stuff up for Democrats to vote on and Democrats can't avoid the vote. And so the whole thing is just Republicans and Democrats. And in this case, it's it's a it's some of both. But the whole thing is just that everybody gets the opportunity to either throw up stuff that they want to change about the bill or in many cases just uh, put up for a vote stuff that is going to be awkward for the other party when it comes to a vote. And so this process goes on for hours and hours and hours because, again, there's no procedure for stopping it. Right. There's no like, well, we're just not going to do that. We're just going to move on. Or um, right. If you want this thing to if you want a reconciliation to pass, you have to go through this basically until everyone is so exhausted that they're just tired of it and don't want to do it anymore. And so that's why we had something like 15 hours of straight voting over the course of this weekend in which uh, it, it, under which a bunch of changes actually were made to the bill. And so this is one of the things that we should think about when when sort of thinking about the, the whether this is a good bill or, or not or what the problems with this might be is that a bunch of the, the policies in this bill were not things that we have been debating for the last year. There were things that got thrown into the bill and changes that got made at the very, very last minute after 10 or 12 hours of overnight voting because somebody was just like, oh, well, let's do this. Well, let's do this. Well, let's do this. And it's not really a very good way to produce major legislation. It's like somebody started complaining about the we don't have time to read the bill thing and the entire congressional leadership was just like, hold our beers. Like, it's just it's it's absurd. There's literally no way you can know what's in there. Sadly, no one on the floor seemed to be drinking beer during the. I don't Obama. know that that would improve things for America. Uh, Catherine, uh, as we wrap up this initial segment of the Reason Roundtable podcast, uh, I want you. I want to strap. Uh, that's the wrong word. I want to uh, uh, attach a uh, electrodes to your system, a microphone to every. It's I, I can't. I don't know. Uh, and just get a reaction to the following. Uh, tweet last night from uh, President uh, Joe Biden. You ready? My father used to say, sorry, I'll stop today. My father used to say that a job was about a lot more than a paycheck. It was about your dignity, your respect, your place in the community. It was about being able to look your child in the eye and say it was going to be okay. That's the economy I'm determined to build. <laughs> like, what is he even talking about? This bill barely touches on anything that might even be remotely construed as being part of 
Like, is, is does he mean the part where we wrote rules requiring that the components for our electrical cars be made in America, even though we literally can't do that and won't be able to do that for years. So we're going to have to give ourselves waivers in order to keep buying the subsidized electrical cars that, by the way, we're out of anyway, because everyone bought them with the existing subsidies. And like somehow that is going to like lead to some guy in Scranton having a job and being able to look his son in the eye at night. Like that's stupid and wrong. All right. Uh, we are going to uh, get to our listener email of the week here in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. What are you doing right now to work on the most important organ in your body, your brain? Some people will literally exercise seven days a week or experiment with insanely complicated diets or compile Excel spreadsheets of every book ever published referencing the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, rather than devoting some real time <laughs> to working on that fateful lump between their ears. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here to say, let's take care of that brain, shall we? BetterHelp is customized online therapy delivered via video, phone, live chat, or any technological method you prefer. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a professional in under 48 hours, and you can keep trying out new therapists until you find someone that really clicks. Roundtable listeners get 10% off their first month. Just go to betterhelp.com roundtable. That's betterhelp.com roundtable. Go there today. Your brain will be glad you did. Okay, reminder to email us your pithy queries, and you don't have to do it six times, emailer in question, um, to roundtable at reason.com. This one comes from our uh, persistent correspondent, Nicholas Drpich. Dear Reason editors and personal heroes. Okay. Uh, I would like to ask you about the state of freedom in the USA and the state of the USA in comparison to other developed industrialized nations. America seems to be significantly less free than the other countries in, for example, mass incarceration, excessive punitive punishments, criminalization of drugs, excessive power concentrated in the executive or the presidency, a militarized police, the prosecution of Assange and Snowden, and of course, the death penalty. What are your thoughts on that? And in general, America seems to do less well than the rest of the developed nations when it comes to higher prices of health care, higher prices of high education, higher homicide rates, etc. I understand that those problems are the consequence of flawed and excessive intervention on free markets. But how would you respond to an average non-libertarian person who points out those problems and especially someone who blames those problems on the lack of a welfare state? Big question. Catherine, why don't you bite off a piece of it? Yeah, I I do think that there is still a case to be made. I think all of the uh, concerns raised in that email are extremely spot on, that it, they are basically correct and raised in the order I would raise them if I were to make the case for why America is not free. But I think that there are some things that uh, Americans have that we take for granted that are kind of foundational in our individual freedom. And I include here free speech, due process, and um, being able to keep more of our money. Um, and those, I think, are, you know, again, other developed nations have these to varying degrees. Uh, other places, you know, and the U.S. takes dents out of these to varying degrees. But there is still a reason that people with uh, exciting ideas for new companies come here. 
There is a reason that a lot of um, innovation comes out of this country. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with our, our personal freedoms. I guess the other thing I would say is a bunch of those things that the letter writer described are fixable. And maybe I am an, an idiot, but I still think we might be able to fix some of them. Like mass incarceration, we could stop doing that. We could just stop. We could, we could stop. In a way that I think, for instance, having a a constitution that doesn't robustly protect free speech and due process the way ours does um, is harder to fix. So I think like the fundamentals are sound, as douchebags say, uh, in every industry and every field, even if the implementation is uh, wildly off kilter at the moment. So is the, is the U.S. a libertarian paradise? Absolutely not. But is it um, a land of opportunity? in a meaningful way? And is that a huge part of what I see as personal freedom, like a core component of personal freedom? I, I think yes. Nick, uh, State of Freedom USA, are you going to let these foreigners insult us? Uh, no, I'm happy to have uh, Nicholas among our uh, readers and I think among uh, Amer living in America as well. So more power to him and to people like him. Uh, you know, a couple of things he's talking about with Catherine uh, touched on, but you know, mass incarceration is being addressed and it is declining. I mean, it needs to actually, you know, we need to have a mass setting free of people who are uh, being held for nonviolent offenses. Uh, the drug war is changing. Free speech is under attack, but we still have a remarkably uh, robust free speech culture here. And this is, you know, this is one of the biggest fights. What worries me as much as anything else is the. Um, uh, you know, is is the way that we're talking about immigration. And this is something where the political class, whether in the Republican or Democratic Party, and the people are at quite distinct odds. 75% of people, you know, regularly will say in polls, this is a historic high, say immigration is good for the country. You would not know that by the way that either major party talks about immigration or especially acts on it. Uh, so th this is where the battle lines are drawn, um, you know, and it's, Important for us, uh, speaking of immigration, you know, uh, uh, xenophobes are always like there are too many people coming here. Uh, you know, the real problems start when people don't come here uh, as often. And I think one of the things that America needs to do to keep sharp is to not be just simply saying, oh, well, we're better than, you know, China or India or Russia or whatever, or even the EU. It's like we need to be living up to our own ideals in a much more forceful way. And I think, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals and progressives, and even a lot of libertarians are in kind of a defensive crouch. And that needs to that needs to be shaken off, especially among libertarians. We need to become optimistic and also push that optimism, force that optimism down people's throats, uh, not unlike <laughs> slim congressional majorities force transformational legislation down our throats on a two-year cycle. That so was you're the saying, best case scenario for a metaphor to what other things were being forced down our throats. Imagine freedom as a hot dog eating contest. No, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's just, we're going to coerce our way to freedom. Uh, Suderman, how would you answer this question? Like, what even is freedom, man? Yeah, is that's that's, that's that's my answer. No, um, I have a like. I mean, so I I think it's like Catherine. I think it is um, really important to to focus on the free speech part of this, which the letter writer does not mention. Uh, uh, United States free speech protections are not just important to me personally because I am a professional producer of words. 
I think those those the free speech protections are sort of inherent to American culture and American freedom and the idea of like you cannot be put in jail for things that you say in except in some very, very, very narrow cases in the United States. It's really hard to be legally sanctioned for saying stuff. And that is is a, a big difference between the United States and almost every other society that has ever existed. And I think it's one of the things that, that makes the United States great. Um, I would also, to Nick's point about immigration, people want to come to the United States. And what does that tell you? It tells you that this is a place of, if not perfect libertarian freedom. It is a place where people feel free and like they have opportunity. And there's a place where that, that, that people think is more free and has more opportunity than a lot of other places because they're coming here rather than staying where they, uh, where they are or, or going somewhere else. Um, and finally, on a, a, a sort of more narrow point, I think international comparisons about things like prices are really difficult, especially when it comes to sectors where there is a huge amount of government intervention, like healthcare and education, and in particular on healthcare. It's just not obvious to me that prices meaningfully exist in a lot of other countries. I mean, if you think about the UK uh, with it, with the NHS, they have a completely government-controlled, top-down healthcare system. And so, yes, no one pays for healthcare at the point of care. That's uh, that's a, a precept of the NHS. At the same time, are they're not meaningful prices in that in in the UK really at all? Yes, there's some sort of small private systems for wealthier people, people who want to opt out um, or you know uh, pay privately. But effectively, prices do not exist there. And and in the United States. We so we kind of sort of have some thing. They're not really prices, but they're a little more price-like because there are some kind of sort of market mechanisms. But even here, we don't really like have prices beyond price. Impossible yes. prices. We have like plant-based prices. They're, yes, right. They're um yeah. They're they they're they're exactly that. Right. Like on the one hand, they they look a lot like prices. On the other hand, they are not made of prices. <laughs> 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 but it's it's fair to point out that our system is shitty when you look at the amount of money we spend on I, it as a society I and the outcomes. That I have get. spent the last 12 years of my life, 13 years, whatever it is, criticizing the American healthcare system because it has a lot of problems, uh, very many of which are caused by huge government programs that make prices uh, either opaque or non-existent. At the same time, these things, these things are, it's, it's genuinely difficult to do these international comparisons. And I would just say that while the United States, the, like the outsider view of the United States healthcare system is that it's sort of, it's this dystopian thing in which like lots of people are dying and nobody can actually get care. And it is, it can be a labyrinth at times. And there, there are certainly, you can find anecdotal stories the, of things that are like, oh man, that, that shouldn't have happened. But most people in the United States are actually pretty happy with their health care. When you look at the surveys, most people do have some form of health insurance. Uh, and uh, at the if you sort of think of a, a bell, like a, a distribution bell curve of experiences, the really hard cases, um, really bad cancer, unusual uh, 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 diseases, that sort of thing. In many cases, if not most, you are actually better off being in the United States than you are 
uh, being in one of the being in in the UK or Canada or France or one of the European countries that where that people are always saying have such a great healthcare system. And so those systems, in some ways, do provide a an experience that is a little more consistent from person to person. But the United States does better at the top end at sort of the extreme of experiences. And the middle isn't so bad. Most people actually, uh, most people are in the, the middle of the bell curve there. And people basically like their health care and their doctors. I'll tell you what I don't like. I don't like uh, one mile ambulance rides that cost uh, $1,200. Just going to put that out there. Something that I don't like. Um, Might have come up recently. Uh, I appreciate. I think we the, have an ad uh, for that on the on the recent yeah. roundtable. Yeah, do you like a uh, for Do you like so, New yeah, York State a... spending thirty grand a year on K through twelve education, Matt? Are you do you that feel I like, like. Uh, that's, you that's, feel yeah, like you're getting that. a lot of super good that's, that's coming down to you? True, like the Uber fare for the Wii U oh. wagon is real high in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, I and I might like point the... out that our you know the current issue on newsstands soon to be supplanted by the next one, but our August September double issue right is about banned books, and it's not. Like Peter was saying, there's very few things where you can be put in jail, but we are in a spasm of sensorial behavior, well, um, and is, I think it's worth fighting about. This is one reason that we, at Reason, lose our minds anytime there's anything that even has like the brimstone whiff of censorship about it, because this is something we, we get right that everyone else gets wrong, and we got to water the tree of free speech with the blood of librarians <laughs> from time to time or whatever well, not with their blood uh, not yeah. with their blood i don't all right maybe fine. they're no pink slips. fine no blood Catherine had a little accident yesterday yeah. so she's a little bit <laughs> blood, blood on my focused <laughs> <laughs> um i uh i would just like to say thank you for the question i think americans in general do not spend much time comparing their freedoming with the freedoming of other uh countries or just Asking themselves and asking their political parties and representatives, uh, how am I, how am I freedoming right now? I'm just going to keep using it that way. Sorry. Uh, like, uh, what's are are we doing it right? Are we doing it enough? In what ways are we um, running contrary to our professed ideals? Um, it's one of the great uh, points about being uh, a republic that's based on basically an idea. Um, as opposed to ethnicity or language or religion or anything else. Uh, is that where it asks us to reflect on those ideals, particularly in the Declaration of Independence. And we should be doing that more often. And we should be coming up to uh, more uh, unhappy conclusions or at least a bigger to-do list about how to get some more freedoming uh, going on in this country. That's what I say about that. So thank you, Nicholas, for that question. And and all of us have, uh, have uh, some homework to do. All right. Uh, Last week, we saw a bunch of uh, elections in these very same United States. Uh, there were primaries, there were referendums and referenda, there are DA races uh, and so forth. It's a big country, lots of different things, uh, a lot of possible takeaways as we head into the midterm congressional election season. So let's go around the table and find out what, sh what each of us thought was of uh, interest. Catherine, do you want to lead us off? Yeah, I was uh, delighted that Kansas uh, decided to stick by its protections for abortion. A lot of hype around that, obviously. And I think 
probably, broadly speaking, people overread that result. Like, this is the bellwether that tells us everything about everything. It probably doesn't. But, you know, a reddish state with a better abortion outcome than I would have anticipated. So um, amidst the news of abortion federalism gone wrong, for those of us who are pro-choice, some abortion federalism gone right. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe more to come. That state uh, ain't red-ish. That state is red. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's true. That is red. a deep red state. Uh, would you, would with you also, describe it as blood red? Uh, also with very, uh, you know, as far as they go, pretty liberal uh, abortion laws. Uh, uh, right. Kansas and, is, and protected yeah. at a high level, right? I mean, the the, right. the place that that is encoded is going to be um, difficult to undo, especially after um, this month's results. Which I will uh, just piggyback on to talk about a, a more recent uh, vote in Indiana, uh, you know, where uh, essentially the legislature, and this is important in Kansas, was a ballot initiative in Indiana. It was the legislature essentially banned abortion. Um, and, um, you know, so these are the extremes in many ways. And the extremes are not either you get to uh you know kill babies for up to a year after they're born it's moderate laws or laws that protect uh abortion basically up until about viability or quickening or virtually no uh, abortion is allowed at all that's that's what we're seeing in indiana versus kansas and indiana just passed the draconian ban and you can start to see that is going to start filtering and even into other red states like Florida, which currently has uh, decent abortion uh, protections, but Ron DeSantis has already made clear that he is going to fight to essentially ban abortion there as much as possible. Uh, Peter, what did you what uh, stuck out uh, with you uh, last uh, week? Uh, the Kerry Lake won the Republican governor nomination in Arizona. Kerry Lake is a Trump-backed. Uh, you know, believer, a spreader of the idea that Trump actually won the 2020 election. And I think it just sort of shows you that the Trump era of the Republican Party is not over yet. We are going to be dealing with that for at least another couple of years. And not just uh, Kerry Lake, Michigan, Tudor Dixon um, also uh, uh, won uh, his Republican nomination for governor and a bunch of people, both Michigan and Arizona. That's kind of the the leading edge of people uh, Republicans who are running and winning, talking about uh, specifically uh, about how uh, Trump uh, had the election stolen out from underneath him. And these people are uh, going to be in positions, whether as governors or attorneys general uh, or other positions to uh, certify or not the election in 2024. I think it's an underrated, uh, under discussed a bit, at least in some circles, uh, the extent to which um, that question is still of of large importance to big swaths of Republican voters, and it's bad. It's bad. You shouldn't you shouldn't vote for people based on something that isn't true and put them in positions where they could do the bad thing next time. Um, that also happens with Democrats, of course, too. Stacey Abrams, to my knowledge, still has not <laughs> uh, acknowledged defeat uh, or at least a fair and square defeat in Georgia. From I even forget now how many years that's gone by, um, and Democrats have been challenging elections for a long time, from 2000 onward. Uh, but I think it's a larger 
um, uh, issue right now within the Republican Party. And again, um, you can point to it and you could say the big lie and you could do a lot of heavy breathing, but it's the direct election of people who are going to be in positions to adjudicate those disputes going forward. That's the pressure point, And it's bad. That's what I say. I would say that uh, there is a bipartisan bill uh, in Congress right now, in the federal Congress, right, um, to uh, that would fix a bunch of the issues that sort of were the the loopholes the, that were exploited or that uh, were tried that like the Eastman memo tried to exploit in 2020 in particular the idea that the vice president could simply not certify an election um, and so I, I think that some of the that like there is at least one piece of legislation that actually makes an attempt to fix the real problem here uh, in the statute um, or at least to start fixing it and uh, and that is the sort of thing that we should look forward to. I don't think that will solve anything, though. I mean, because this and, and I think, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, that the danger here, or the problem is that you have people who know that Trump lost and refuse to admit it. They don't actually believe what they're saying, but they're going to continue to act as that. And even if the laws are changed, et cetera, you know, this is a massive, you know, it's a foundational myth for a modern Republican Party uh, or one future of it that is simply wrong. Uh, and no amount of legal changes, uh, you know, or, or anything like that, I think is going to address it. Uh, and you so have I, people I, who are willing to it's... play along, if I may, just uh, at Freedom Fest, Rand Paul, who certified the election as a senator and whatnot, when he was asked by Mark Skousen, are you, you know, did Biden win? He immediately started talking about how, oh, well, we don't really know because we need to do, you know, we need to audit all of the elections and that hasn't been done, et cetera. And so he wasn't openly saying that Biden is an illegitimate president or that Trump did, you know, actually won and was robbed from him. But he immediately goes to this other thing, which is just throwing up a bunch of smoke bombs and, and, and fireworks and sparklers to keep alive the idea that the very basic thing that allows government to be representative or to be legitimate, we're going to keep throwing that up uh, you know, into the air uh, because we didn't like the outcome this one time. There is a version of this in the Democratic Party, but I think, Matt, you're right when you say right now the big problem is Republicans who are just you know, either demented or lying. Uh, and either way, it's, it's not good. So I, I do think that uh, there is no legislative change that is going to that is going to radically change the culture of the Republican Party. However, there are procedural changes that you can make to the lack of clarity in the Electoral Count Act that would make it more difficult to stage a procedural revolt as Trump and his allies attempted following the 2020 election. I would also uh, just uh, echo what a lot of people were pointing out in the wake of yesterday's Senate vote, which again was 51 to 50 with Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote as vice president, that that would not have happened uh, had Republicans won in the Senate in Georgia. And one of the reasons widely understood why Republicans did not win in a, you know, a, a Republican-leaning state uh, is that Donald Trump spent a lot of time um, uh, uh, saying that the vote in Georgia was illegitimate and basically discouraging people from voting um, uh, in a special election. So um, there's there could be sort of like a correcting mechanism or let's not even that it's there's something self-defeating about this, 
Um, and to the extent of which politicians are going to keep doing this, it's not going to be an attractive play for a future candidate of the party, I do not believe, among independents in particular who, who continue to be the swing vote and whose uh, uh, affection for Donald Trump uh, started at parity when he was elected in 2016 and has plummeted ever since. And it's not going to be improved by this kind of Republican primary fealty to the idea that the 2020 election was somehow stolen. Um, just nope. Um, all right, let's go to our end of podcast, what we have all been consuming. I understand that some of you consumed similar products and might like to talk about it amongst yourselves for the benefit of our listeners. So Catherine, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, I watched um, some, I've not yet finished it, but I watched some of the new Netflix adaptation of The Sandman, which uh, I was looking forward to a lot. Uh, listeners to this podcast may recall that I really enjoyed Good Omens, which was the last Neil Gaiman adaptation um, and uh, just felt that it was delightful and true to the spirit of the book and all around, uh, you know, watchable and even rewatchable. I have slightly more mixed feelings about the Sandman so far. Um, it's good. It's very good. And it's the thing that I like about these adaptations, which Gaiman himself is typically involved in, very involved in, uh, is my understanding, is that the the people talk good. There's good talking in these. The words are better than the words in other shows. And I know that that's a silly thing to say, but, um, you know, it's a, it's the scripting is sophisticated. It's really, you know, there are very few sort of jarringly stupid moments. And I appreciate that um, because a lot of a lot of TV and especially kind of fantasy type stuff um, really suffers from that problem. Uh, a lot of the casting is very, very good. Uh, you cannot beat the amount of just like craggy faceness that uh, Morpheus is delivering to us all. Um, and the casting for death is very good as well. Um, is it perfect? No. Uh, we have a little bit of a Disney sidekick problem with the Raven, Matthew. Um, it's a little, he's a little bit jarring, but, um, you just hate animal friends. I do. I don't love a familiar. That's, there's no doubt about that. But, um, but overall so far, uh, I do recommend it if you are already a fan of the Sandman comics or of Neil Gaiman or just kind of well-scripted darkish fantasy. See, I kind of thought that the Raven voiced by, uh, by Patton Oswalt. Mm-hmm. Was kind of, was like the best part, <laughs> and I, I I I admit I am not a huge like devotee of the Sandman comics, but I own the all the graphic novels and I've read them and I enjoyed them. I don't think I've looked at them, you know, in in at least ten years at this point, and I I just felt like this show. It's not it's not a disaster, but I kept waiting for something to make me go. Oh yeah, this really works. And instead, it just sort of reminded me that I did like the comics, and it made me want to go read the comics. I also there was a, a funny bit. Um, Neil Gaiman gave an interview about uh, uh, about producing the show, in which he was like, "Yeah, so Tom Sturridge, the guy who plays Sandman, I had to constantly tell him not to use the Batman voice because like, you could just see in this." Like in the show that he's that Tom Sturridge wants to like walk around going like, yeah, I'll fight the crime on the street. And like, it's not that's not 
Yeah. Dream. That's not what he's supposed to be like. Dream he's is definitely a little, supposed to be a little more of an emo, yeah, emo, emo ethereal. Yeah, yeah. he's yeah. a little fae element yeah. to him. Uh, I will say there's a reason that I don't read reviews of things that I'm excited about. And uh, you sent me the link to the Batman voice thing. And then I couldn't unhear it. You like ruined it for me because <laughs> he really does sound like Batman a lot. Um, I, so one thing that I liked, I am not a big fan of graphic novels as a general matter, but one thing I like about comics movies is those moments in comics movies when they're doing a panel from the like an iconic panel from the comics. And you 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 know, they're doing a little like, ta-da! you remember this panel, guys? And like, it's it's a little it's I could see how if you didn't if you didn't like the comics or if you weren't aware of them or if you just kind of didn't like that style, it would be grading. I love it every time. Every single time you get a really comics cinematic moment, and there were many of them in Sandman, um, I just had a little moment of like delight. So, and that's true in the Marvel movies too. And it's true, you know, you get, you just get these like land and pose, you know, sweeping landscape moments that are, I, I think, really nice. I will say that people who have not read the comics should seek them out. They're landmark. They changed the course of uh, the comics industry. And among other things, uh, no, they really, I mean, they did. Like They, they sort of World built- World history, really. They, they built a lot of the kind of um, the, ver- the vertigo uh, approach to comics. Uh, Vertigo was a label, an imprint uh, produced by DC Comics. Uh, they like produced a lot of. We might have yeah. just run out Nick and Matt's patience here, but uh, let's get to the baseball. No, I, part, I, I, I was going to. I was going to ask: Is the Raven worse? Uh, I mean, for me, the highlight of the Disney sidekick, and it's not a problem. It's great. Uh, was Gilbert Gottfried's Iago in Aladdin? I want to uh, see a movie with you know. both of them. Honestly, that Raven Matthew has much more uh, like Zazu energy. So, but the comics brought female readers into comic book shops uh, in a way that was unusual for the time, and and really did kind of change how comic books were produced and sort of and what could get made. Um, there was a, I forget her name, but there was a woman editor in charge of the Vertigo line for uh, a decade or more who was incredibly influential. If you haven't read the comics, my, my recommendation here is, eh, I don't know about the Netflix the series, but go read the comics. Uh, final note, and then I promise I will shut up, which is that uh, there was a kerfuffle around the casting for this because they, they recast a lot of roles that were originally written as men as women and people of color um i think it all basically worked and it was good um first and foremost um what is her name gwendolyn gwendolyn um the big gal from game of thrones as the devil like just a plus the big old blonde gal um just killing it nick save us please now uh, matt i was gonna ask you about uh you know did you like mike trout's cameo in the uh, second, they wasted Mike Trout in the second half of the Sandman series. <laughs> That's, there's by, a tradition by not tradition giving him. A, uh, I'm, yeah. Of course, name checking your long tweet thread about Mike Trout, uh, baseball's yes. greatest player, who was wasted by a franchise that really uh, just exists to waste the great players. Thank you. And we're going to get, that's a good foreshadowing for mine. Okay. Go, so, uh, what did, what did you watch? Uh, yeah, what I uh, read was Return of the Artisan, how America went from industrial to handmade by Grant McCracken. He's a person who has written for reason and inspired certainly a lot of my thought uh, in the 90s and well into the uh, 21st century. And uh, this is a book that looks at the shift after World War II from a kind of pre 
industrial society. I mean, that's not quite right, but pre-ready-made society to everybody wanting everything to be as big and shiny and as pre-made as possible and kind of losing the human touch uh, and you know being the product of machines and perfect and big and glossy back to kind of where we are now. Um, and it's a, it's a great history of why that happened and the benefits of it and also how it's unfolding uh, the, the spirit animals of, um, of, uh, from artisan, to, or uh, I'm sorry, the return of the artisan, our Alice Waters, the restaurateur who created Chez Panisse in Berkeley in the late 60s, early 70s, and revolutionized American, not just American restaurants, but American approaches to food. Uh, and Stuart Brand, another uh, a Bay Area person who we've talked a lot about, I've interviewed several times over the years, um, and who kind of turned the computer from a, or the, uh, imagined the computer less as a mainframe, uh, mainframe uh, kind of Uber overlord that just used us all as as uh, data in whatever program it was running to the idea of the personal computer, uh, where people it was uh, the computer was something smaller and it was an agent of individual empowerment. Um, I highly recommend uh, the return of the artisan. Uh, he McCracken, who's trained as an anthropologist, has a great eye for detail, and he talks about the rise of smaller and smaller uh, kind of scale everything in America, freak flag flying and production at the smallest level possible. The most interesting stuff that he really gets into is the idea of, uh, you know, people are less driven by profit uh, and more by satisfaction and by and and that we're wealthy enough, at least for the time being, to support a lot of this. Um, and he prophecies a bit about how COVID-19 sped up uh, the end state of the new artisanal economy. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think he thinks that people are leaving cities for good in a way that is yet to be uh, played out. But again, highly recommend Return of the Artisan. Peter, what have you been consuming? Since I already talked about Sandman, I'll keep this short. I saw John Carpenter's 1982 sci-fi horror masterpiece, The Thing, on the big screen for the first time. This is, um, it's it's a, sort of a remake of the 50s version, but it's actually, Carpenter went back to the old John W. Campbell story uh, that, that, that it was originally based on and just adapted that. And it's perfect. It is an absolute masterpiece of genre filmmaking in every way. There's beautiful Dean Cundy filmmaking uh, photography. Um, Cundy, of course, was a, a, a collaborator with Spielberg on a lot of um, his 80s and early 90s films. And just and his his work is so subtle, but you really see all the sort of the artistry of it on the big screen, all the way that he's just sort of hiding things in shadows and moving people through darkness. The special effects in this movie are legendary in terms of the way that uh, practical effects are used to build monsters and do sort of crazy gore stuff. It's just, it's just incredible. Um, I loved every minute of it. A minute of it. Strongly recommend seeing this on the big screen. It is playing around the country. I know in New York, here in D.C., this it is going around for the 40th anniversary of this film. And 
it's just it just works so well on the big screen in a way that e- even having seen it many times uh, at home, uh, you know, in a little home theater setup, it's it's so much better to see it there with other people who are into it and to feel it in in a way like in a way that you just don't at home when you can kind of get up and be distracted because you feel this perfect pacing of it and sort of the the relentless logic. It's also a kind of interestingly very subtle political film. John Carpenter is famously uh, a man of the left, often builds that into his movies. And this is, in some ways, uh, a movie about... um, uh, about the Red Scare and about the ways that it made people crazy because you thought that any that everyone or anyone could be your enemy and you simply didn't know who it was and it made people maniacs. Uh, and so there's an interesting kind of political subtext to this movie, even though it doesn't demand to be read in a political way. Just great experience. Strongly recommend 1982 The Thing starring Kurt Russell and his utterly amazing beard. There, it also contains one of my favorite uh, political metaphors, and I'm not going to spoil it in case anyone's going to watch this movie for the first time, but a particularly unlikely and awful, horrid thing happens, and the characters look at it, and someone says, no effing way. I didn't say effing, but I'm being nice to Fred Young. Fred, I want you to, to appreciate that. Um, uh, and uh, so, so, by the way, it is fun to think about the red, you know, the anti-red scare, red scare politics of John Carpenter in the early 80s, um, because, you know, it's like, eh, you know, McCarthyism was wrong. We know that. And it was always wrong in all circumstances. But, uh, you know, when in the later Cold War, which we didn't know necessarily, um, you know, anti-anti-communist stuff takes on a, a particularly ironic tinge. Yes. Keep on rocking in the free world. Nick Gillespie. Uh, all right. My, uh, what I watched as foreshadowed by Nick, uh, was a documentary, new a documentary called Facing Nolan. That sound you hear is Catherine already snoring. Uh, it's about uh, Nolan Ryan, uh, a longtime pitcher, pitch for 27 years. Uh, and I'll get to the Catherine part that you will like first, which is that uh, the documentary does show and celebrate a thing I love to see in all documentaries about athletes and musicians and other people, which is a very strong work ethic. Famously, uh, dude lifted a lot of weights back when no one was doing <laughs> that. That was the stop for me. <laughs> that was it. I, no, it's, uh, he's he's an incredible. He he was the uh, the avatar of the long lived, uh, you know, the old guy who is still at the top of his game for yeah. a very long time. Famously, we just went through the I don't know what uh, anniversary it was twentieth maybe thirtieth twenty fifth whatever it was on the on the day where he got into a fight uh, on, on a baseball field. And usually baseball fights don't involve actual punching, just a lot of standing around. Uh, uh, he, Nolan Ryan, uh, threw harder than anybody else for a really long time. And he still, when he was 46 years old, was still throwing 97 miles per hour. And he and he hit a young and spry Robin Ventura, who was an excellent player. And Robin Ventura charged the mound. We hear some interesting backstory about that, by the way, in this documentary. Charged the mound to fight Nolan Ryan, a man 20 years his senior, and Ryan just gets him into a headlock immediately and just pummels the shit out of him. And it's fantastic. Um, that just uh, that just happens. We get into bits of that. Um, it's a fun documentary if you are an Angels fan or a Nolan Ryan fan or just of like 70s and 80s baseball and characters. They have interviews with George Brett and, and, and Pete Rose um, and Dave Winfield and other people like that, Randy Johnson. And uh, uh, but also, if you just see the um, the the trailer for this, um, 
it, I'm not sure it gets a lot better in, in the film. The trailer is really good about the, you know uh, describing the sounds of how, how hard his fastball was and how impossible it was to to hit him and these kind of things. And that's because the movie was executive produced like so many documentaries are today by Nolan Ryan and his family. So like we get that's a lot annoying. About, we get that's a lot annoying. about his how his wife was really you know what uh, made it all work and uh, and what just a good family man he is and all this stuff. He and is a he's a the, good the Christian. Wife. If I'm going to watch this, which I'm definitely not, yeah. I want to know about the wife. Um, I have a question. Should we each pick a Nolan? Because I was just thinking yours is Nolan Ryan, hmm. Suderman's is Christopher Nolan, maybe mine's the David Nolan of the Nolan chart, and then Nick, I don't mm-hmm. know who yours is, but maybe it's Elizabeth Nolan Brown. It uh, oh. could be, yeah. Um, I was also, uh, Matt, help me out here. Who was the St. Louis Cardinals def- dirty uh, football player, Nolan? Uh, I mean, there's Nolan Cromwell from the Rams, but that's not it. No. Uh, yeah, uh, no. Nolan. Uh, yeah, I'm blanking. I mean, Nolan Ryan would be way up there. Um, Conrad Nobler. Conrad Nobler. I'm sorry, Nobler. you're right. So it's not even. It's, I'm just uh, saying everyone should uh, have but, a pet Nolan. Nolan uh, Ryan is pets. phenomenal. <laughs> uh, Matt, what was the year where he went like nine and twenty-one or something? Or yeah. and I mean, he should have won the Cy Young because he led the league in like strikeouts and ERA or something. It's nineteen eighty-seven. He went eight and sixteen. Not that I yeah. have that in my brain pan. Uh, no, anyways, it's it's I mean, good. It's, yeah. it's good if you're into this kind of stuff, but it's also disappointing. And I wanted to just register the ongoing complaint about the players' tribunization of uh sports and also and and uh, other things too where when you know it's great that people are able to use technology to tell their own stories out in the world but i also it's one of the reasons why i enjoyed hbo's winning time about the lakers is because they didn't give anyone that kind of uh veto power over their image and so we can get into the actual nastiness and rough edges of sports and life which i think are much more interesting in general end of speech all right nolan well, thank ryan's you all for career listening. Overlapped quite a bit with the publication of the first several years of The Sandman. It's all coming together. I, I don't really see the connection. Um, anyways, <laughs> that's uh, crystal clear. You're uh, feeling sleepy, Matt. You're feeling go sleepy. Go to all no of our, that. you can find all our podcasts, including the uh, Reason Interview with Nick Gillespie, the Soho Film yeah. Debate series with uh, Gene Epstein, and the new. You should subscribe to it if you haven't, people, because you already subscribed to this one and the Reason interview with Nicholas, but the Reason Rundown featuring Peter Suderman, which he interviews various Reasonoids uh, and delving down into their areas of expertise. It's very interesting and good, uh, and you should listen to all of that. Go to Reason.com podcasts for that stuff, uh, and uh, if you like what we do as an organization, including our public policy work and research, uh, please go to Reason.com slash donate. Make your tax-deductible donation, which is going to be very important in an era of increased IRS enforcement. Uh, Okay, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.